I am delighted to be with you all <clears throat> this morning. Um, been looking forward to worshiping with you um, all since the beginning of the year when your pastor, Pastor Jim, um, asked if I would come uh, and be willing to share God's word with you. So I'm incredibly honored and humbled uh, to occupy this pulpit in his stead. Um, so to Pastor Jim and the elders and the leaders of this church, thank you all for this sort of sacred honor to bring the word of God to the flock that you all have labored over and cared for well for so many years. Preaching in general and in another church's pulpit specifically is never a right, but always a privilege. And to all of you at CCR, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father to whom be the glory forever. So earlier this year, the NBA Finals came to a decided and satisfactory conclusion, depending on who you ask, right? The last two teams standing, having run through the gauntlet of many of the other exceptional NBA teams out there, were the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors. Now, while I did want Golden State to win, truth be told, I was more interested in a good series with the currently two best teams in the largest basketball organization in the world contending for the title of champion. Now, anyone who knows me well will tell you that I don't watch, during the regular season at least, basketball or football or baseball or any other mainstream sport for that matter. I've just not been that into them. I prefer combat sports like MMA and boxing. I watch a lot of UFC. Don't judge me too harshly for that. Um, if, you're do, if you do, this sermon is actually re really appropriate. <laughs> Neither here nor there. Okay, at any rate, I only watch basketball at the end of the season in the same way that I only watch football during the Super Bowl or baseball during the World Series. And so in an effort to get caught up to speed as much as I could and go into the NBA playoffs and finals with a basic level of understanding of the game, its key players and what the community of fans and experts surrounding the sport are saying, I decided to tune into a show that would repeatedly get po keep popping up on my YouTube feed under the trending category called First Take to get the latest and up-to-date coverage and expert analysis. So First Take, as many of you sports fans know, is an American sports talk show on ESPN. It's one of ESPN's flagship programs providing round table and often adversarial daily debate, often known as hot takes, on current sports topics of interest to a mainly United States audience. The hosts of this show, Stephen A. Smith and Max Kellerman, along with Molly Karim, they break it all down for you. All right, so I began watching clips of the show under all the, you know, the fantastical headlines about the NBA playoffs and finals. You know the clickbait. Stephen A. Smith destroys Max Kellerman about such and such, or Max and Stephen A. get into a heated debate about this player, or Molly goes off on person X about such and such. You get the idea. So I'm like, click, 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 click. You know, you got me. You got me again. So now one of the topics on first take that kept coming up over and over again as they were covering the finals, and the question that was repeatedly raised from a slightly different angle was the subject of the GOAT. 
the greatest of all time. Who is the greatest of all time with respect to this sport? And so they're going back and forth. Is it LeBron or is it Jordan or Curry or any other number of players who have graced the court over the years since the game's inception with incredible feats of agility and dexterity and skill and precision and accuracy and any other well-deserved superlatives that you might want to throw in there? So they're throwing their player of choice into the hat. And the debate between Stephen A. and Max Kellerman was vigorous and oftentimes furious, each putting forth their own well-articulated and well-crafted arguments for their player with all kinds of stats and graphs and visuals along with a heavy dose of charm, charisma, and passion. If y'all can't tell, I'm kind of memeing them right now. But they really are exceptional, exceptional at what they do. Of course, this debate about the GOAT isn't simply relegated to basketball. Every sport or professional-level athletic competition asks this question of its individual players or teams. The criteria for determining this, though, has innumerable factors, many of which are objective and quantifiable, but then there are also that many that are subjective and based upon a number of biases each person who contributes to the discussion brings to the table. And so this kind of banter and back and forth can be a lot of fun. And certainly in the case of First Take, it gets a lot of viewers locked in to see between the two hosts who has the stronger case and will come out on top in today's episode. This is all fine and well when we're talking about sports and entertainment. But what happens when the stakes are much higher? Life and death higher, even. What happens when what's at stake are people's souls? What happens when we begin having a conversation about who's the greatest and people's souls hang in the balance? And what are the implications? Well, that's exactly what we're going to explore CCR today and find out. So again, in your Bible, we just read Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 50. And of course, in your program, the title of the message this morning is The Narcissism of Minor Differences. The Narcissism of Minor Differences. The first question that I want us to ask is, how did we get here? How did we get to this part in the story where the disciples are having this conversation and this teachable moment with Jesus? You know, it's like we're in the middle of something important, but we don't know how we arrived there. So let's zoom the lens out and see what we're working with. You know how the opening scene of a movie can take place in the middle of a story, and then it takes you back in time and shows you the events leading up to that first scene, and then like the last maybe one-third or half of the movie shows you how it ends from that opening scene? Well, that's how we're going to approach it. In fact, in this case, for this sermon, and what we're going to be talking about, context is everything. Context is everything. So we want to pay close attention to what's going on. Everything that we'll be looking at this morning is all in chapter 9. We're going to look at significant events and interactions in this chapter alone to get us up to speed. So I encourage you to keep your nose in the good book and keep me honest and make sure that I am being faithful to Scripture, okay? All right, here we go. First, in this chapter, chapter 9, 
we are told three times about Jesus' impending death, that he would be rejected by the elders and chief priests, arrested, betrayed, killed, and raised on the third day. The first of which occurs after Peter acknowledges Jesus' deity in verses 18 through 22. You know, when Christ is asking the disciples, who do the crowd say that I am? And they respond, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, others the reincarnation of Elijah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus asked them, okay, now who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ of God. Then Jesus said, shh, don't tell anyone, but know this, I'm about to suffer many things and die. The second time his death is spoken of was during the transfiguration. Now, this is easy to overlook. In verses 30 and 31, apparently, Moses and Elijah, Jesus' predecessors and great and faithful prophets in their own right, they come down to visit with Jesus. And they speak of Christ's departure and what he would accomplish at Jerusalem meaning his crucifixion and death. And then the third time we hear about Jesus' death was following the miracle that Jesus performed when he cast out the evil spirit from a boy in verses 44 and 45. Jesus pulls the disciples aside and he says, listen to me now, listen to me good. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And it went right over the disciples' heads. They didn't get it. This has such important connections for verses 46 through 50, the passage that we just read together. Imagine you all. Imagine the disappointment and the hurt Jesus felt when on three separate occasions, apparently all within a short time frame, his death is foretold, either by Jesus himself or others, in this case Moses and Elijah. Look how the disciples respond. They're wondering, what's in it for me? They are arguing amongst themselves about who is the G-A-U, the greatest among us. Why couldn't they accept that Christ would die? Well, to be fair, they didn't understand what kind of king he was, um, nor, what, nor his approach to saving his people. They just didn't have that sort of reference for the way that Christ would rule. His death seemed inconceivable, and so they were left thinking about, well, what would the established hierarchy be? Who would be his right-hand man? What would the pecking order be? Now, we're not told the specific, what the specifics were about their debate in verses 46, but they were educated guests. They were probably arguing about the criteria by which how that would be determined. Each of them casting their bid maybe and passing out their resumes to each other for why they thought they deserved to be considered the greatest. What tribe did you say that you're from? Who were your parents? Who was your teacher? Did you go to seminary? What was your GPA? How much leadership experience do you have? How much life experience do you have? They were more concerned with the authority, the power, the perks, and the benefits their association with Christ would give them. They didn't understand that Jesus had no status by which they could leverage and build a name off of. In fact, 
He just taught them earlier that the way that they typically think about acquiring life through the acquisition of power and influence and approval, wealth, so on and so forth, is no life at all. That true life is found instead in picking up their cross, dying to the world, and laying down their life, just as Jesus would soon do. How would it make you feel if you knew your death was imminent? And those whom you entrusted with that vulnerable information were jockeying selfishly for position and prestige. That those who you thought were your nearest and dearest and cared about you for you were actually only interested in what you could do for them. The unfortunate truth is that the disciples were well on their way to betraying and denying Christ long before we ever actually get to the Garden of Gethsemane and Christ's arrest and trial and crucifixion. How about that? And so if you're taking notes, okay, here's your first point. That we can miss the cross for boosting our own image. We can miss the cross for boosting our own image. The gospel writer John wrote in one instance, for example, that many, even the authorities, believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see, in this case, Peter, John, and the rest, they wanted the celebrity that came with being associated with Jesus, but not the cost, the responsibility, the sacrifice. We see this reinforced as well in verses 10 through 17, where Jesus is about to feed the 5,000. We know the story well. But often we put the emphasis on the miracle, and we should. But there is also some important dialogue here that deserves attention. You know, prior to Jesus performing the miracles, the disciples wanted to send the crowd away after they had traveled miles from their homes and villages to hear Jesus' teaching. The disciples said, send the crowd away, Jesus, to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a a desolate place, a remote location. They were willing to send them away to fend for themselves. And Jesus says, excuse me? You give them something to eat. What he was trying to teach them was this, that You don't just get to preach and to teach and tell people what they should do and not meet their other felt needs. Jesus met all the needs of people, and the disciples were to do the same if they were to follow him. Now, eventually, Jesus' brother James comes to understand this. He writes about this, for example, in his epistle, his letter, where he gives similar instructions to the importance of faith and works. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Jesus was trying to teach them this lesson in that very moment, and it is a lesson for us as well. Here's our next point. We can talk about it without being about it. We can talk about it without always being about it. Okay, what else do we see happening in this chapter that adds value to our understanding of of our passage in view? Well, one of the most important events in the life of Jesus' ministry 
we touched on it briefly earlier, was his transfiguration in verses 28 through 36. Peter, James, and John witnessed Jesus in his glorified state right before their very eyes. What an extraordinary sight to behold and experience to be a part of. If that were you or I, we'd like to think that we wouldn't dare miss a once-in-a-lifetime moment like that one, right? However, here's a small but interesting fact in this scene. As they were all supposed to be praying, the disciples drifted off to sleep. What else does that remind us of? I'll give you a hint. Sounds like the Garden of Gethsemane, right? But here's where it gets really interesting. As we discussed before, Moses and Elijah come down, and they're talking with Jesus. And the disciples are, and they wake up, and they realize what's going on. Maybe Peter rubs his eyes, wipes the cold out, probably says to him himself, I thought I was dreaming. Oh, shoot, I'm not. And he says, Master, it is good that we were here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Scripture says Peter didn't really know what he was saying. And then a cloud proceeds to hover over them. And God the Father himself speaks from the midst of the cloud and says, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now, at first glance, it seems as though Peter was trying to do the honorable thing by desiring to erect three tents to pay homage to Jesus and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. However, he made two crucial mistakes. The first is this, that he put Jesus on the same level as the other two prophets. He failed to recognize Christ's preeminence, that he was not just a prophet, but he was the prophet. And so God the Father steps in to unequivocally and once and for all set the record straight and tells them all that Jesus was on a completely different level. He, Jesus, was God's chosen one. He was above the rest. God the Father exclaims, listen to him. Remember earlier in the chapter, we learned that there was a case of mistaken identity. Many were confused about him, believing Jesus to be one of the prophets of old, or John the Baptist raised from the dead, or the reincarnation of Elijah. Even Herod, the Roman ruler of the region at that time, who murdered John the Baptist, was inquiring about Jesus and sought an audience with him. John I beheaded, he said, but who's this guy who's got so much buzz surrounding him? Herod asked that in verses 7 and 9, 7 through 9. But God the Father, he puts all of that to rest in declaring Jesus above all of his predecessors. He's in a class all by himself. There's no one like Jesus. And just for good measure and dramatic effect, as soon as the Father finishes speaking, Jesus was all by himself, further driving the message home that there's only one who can save, only one who matters, and it's him. And the second error that Peter makes was one of ulterior motivation. Peter wasn't simply trying to honor the three, but he was also trying to honor himself. It is good that we are here. Really, why? 
See, this wasn't mere deference on Peter's part. Peter was brown-nosing. He was fawning, being somewhat of a sycophant, which is not a curse word, just so you know. (laughs) In other words, he was ingratiating himself, rubbing shoulders, trying to get in close in an attempt to bolster his own status. He was attempting to build his reputation by affiliation. Is everyone still with me? Okay. Let's look at just one more scenario. Verses 37 through 43. Immediately following the events that transpired on the mountain, the next day, in fact, we're told that a man in the crowd who was awaiting Jesus' return cried out to Jesus to heal his son who had an unclean spirit. We're also told that the man initially begged the disciples to cast out the demon, but they could not. I wonder why. This is very interesting because Jesus had just given the disciples authority and the power to heal, cure diseases, and to cast out evil spirits in verses 1 and 2. It says, and I quote, He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So what happened between then and now? Well, we know that Jesus eventually heals the the boy, but before he does so, he says this, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son here. Ah, faithless and twisted, Jesus claims. They didn't believe, or they lacked faith, and and their motives were dubious at best and self-serving and corrupt at worst. The authority was given to the disciples, but the way that they were using that authority was not intended to bring glory to God, but likely to themselves. And God would have no part of that. He's not signing off on that. This is why the disciples couldn't cast out the demon from the boy when his father entreated them. It would have gone immediately to their heads. You see, we've got to be very careful about not taking God's grace for granted and allowing the things that he may do through us to not become about us. Case in point, just one chapter over, one chapter. In Luke 10, Jesus will send 72 other disciples who were following him to preach and to perform miracles, as did the 12. And they came back reporting with great joy, the scripture says, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus, as a caution to them, responds, hmm, you know, this reminds me of something or someone. Let me think. Oh, I know. His name was Satan. And I saw my father kick him out of heaven so hard and so fast that it looked like lightning striking. Because he too let the power given to him go to his head. And he thought that he could be God instead of serving God. Don't y'all make that same mistake now. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, Jesus said. But rejoice in this that your names are written in heaven. I bet they were like, what? My bad, Jesus, never mind. Sorry we asked. 
But one of the other indicators that the disciples were getting just a little too cocky is not merely in the examples that we've already looked at, uh, but also because of their response to the man who was able to cast out demons in Jesus' name in our opening verses. Okay, take a quick breath. Before we go any further, I want to let you guys know that we're all caught up. We're right back where we started, like the opening scene. But now we've got loads of context to inform our understanding about verses 46 through 50. Here's our next point. That we can be around Jesus and not be like Jesus. We can be around Jesus and not be like Jesus. This man, who the disciples tried to stop, who had no name, no status, just believed Jesus and had the right heart, was at that moment more of a disciple of Jesus and the kingdom of God than the disciples themselves who were with him. You see, we can be around Jesus without necessarily being like Jesus. We can hear Jesus' words and still not have his heart. We can be in the church and not actually be the church. Moreover, the disciples decided, well, you know what, since, uh, since Jesus said that we cannot fight amongst ourselves, let's find someone outside of our tribe to compare ourselves to, to criticize and to pick on. Sigmund Freud, one of the fathers of modern psychology, rightly says, it is always possible to bind together a considerable number of people in love as so long as there are people left over to receive the manifestations of their hate and aggressiveness. Jesus was saying to his disciples and to us as well, stop picking fights. The one who is not against you is for you. Why are you starting something? You said you want to be starting something. Got to be starting something. You said you want to be starting something. Got to be starting something. You're just upset. Some of you older folks got that reference. (laughs) It's Michael Jackson, y'all. Jesus is saying you're just upset because you couldn't cast out the demon from the other man's son. And so you would rather God not work at all if he is not working through you. Just because this man is not part of our team or our crew doesn't mean that he doesn't know me or love me. This is a minor difference that in your wounded pride and fragile ego, you have made a major one. This is just like the conversation that Moses had with Joshua in Numbers 11. When you have some time, go back and read it. It's a great read. God had heeded the voice of Moses for help to assist with leading God's people, the children of Israel. And God obliged and took some of the spirit that was on Moses and distributed it amongst several noble men and elders so that they could bear the burden of shepherding with Moses. And as a sign of the spirit of God coming upon these men, they started prophesying in the camp, preaching and teaching and exhorting. And Joshua, who was Moses' assistant at that time, gets jealous and says, Moses, my Lord, stop them. Sound familiar? But Moses says to Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? Are you jealous for me? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on everyone. 
which is what we see post-Christ. That's true for all of us today. You see, it's the exact same situation, just different characters. Would that all God's people prophesied, cast out demons, heal the sick? Don't you and I want that? Isn't that what we want or should want? Our next point, that we can create major rifts from minor differences. We can create major rifts and divisions because of minor differences. Many of our issues with people in the church, in the body of Christ, has more to do, not always, but typically has more to do with them not being a part of our tribe rather than what we often like to claim, which is it's about them not believing exactly the way that we believe. The disciples' issue was with this man was not one of theology or orthodoxy, but of tribalism. We often use minor theological differences as a justification for major disagreement so that we can demonize and ostracize others. We create and make enemies of those who are not our enemies. The Apostle Paul spends an entire chapter in Romans 14 arguing this very point where he says, Stop judging your brothers and sisters over trivial matters because in doing so, you're causing them to stumble and you're injuring their faith and their walk with Christ. And we, the church, you and I, have at times injured many of our brothers and sisters in Christ and damaged their faith because of minor differences that we've made into a bridge too far to cross. The truth is, both the disciples and the man who was casting out demons had Jesus. What they had in common was, more important, was the more, most important thing, but the disciples missed that point. And they failed an opportunity to praise and to worship God for the wonderful things that he was doing. Jesus is trying to save people. And if we're not careful, we can believe we're joining in God's work when what we're really doing is tearing it down. And like Jesus said to the Pharisees, we're liable to shut the kingdom of God in people's faces. Okay, so now, just in case you thought I forgot, why did Jesus choose to use a child as an illustration to address the disciples when they were arguing? Why a child? Well, a child, of course, while incredibly, and we've got some children here, they're beautiful, while incredibly valuable, a child has little to no status, which we know was important to the disciples. They had no status by which the disciples could boost themselves. Jesus, in effect, was saying, this is what it's like to be associated with me. You keep thinking that being connected to me will garner applause and praise and compliments. It will not. Just as knowing a child will not turn heads, it's the same with me. You must associate with the lowly, the abased, the marginalized. We talked about that. We prayed for that in our corporate prayer. And the one of no status, if you want my father to know you and you him. We're all asking ourselves, CCR, in all different circles we find ourselves in, who's the greatest? Am I the greatest? Am I the best in this context, this setting, performing this task? Working this job, studying this subject, making the grade in this classroom, attending this university, playing this game, 
wearing these clothes, driving this car, eating these foods, going to this church, affiliating with this party, on this team, joining this cause, listening to this kind of music, and on and on and on we go. We must come to the realization that we are all pretty much the same. In our efforts not to conform and to shore up our own insecurities sometimes, we miss the fact that we all do the same category of things, though we may do them slightly differently. Freud called this phenomenon the narcissism of minor differences. So here's our last point, and you guys saw this coming. Jesus is the goat. Jesus is the goat. You see, while we're preoccupied with determining who's the greatest through the filter of minor differences, Jesus is saying, there is everyone else, and then there's me. He says, you want to know how valuable you are. Look, I'm going to die for you. Stop scrounging and squabbling to carve your own identity by your own efforts. I've died for you. Isn't that enough for you to know your worth? God the Father speaks from heaven and to all of us and says, Jesus is the goat. He is the greatest. He is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Jesus is in a class all by himself. He is in a league of his own. And one day, we will all bend the knee as proof of that fact. We just read that in Philippians. It's not our degrees, our athletic accomplishments, how much money or material possessions we have or what we have, Are we right-leaning or left-leaning? Do we drive compact cars or trucks? Are we iPhone or Android users? Are we Baptist or Pentecostal or Episcopalian or Methodist or Presbyterian, non-denominational, Calvinist or Arminian, LeBron or Jordan fans, Golden State or Cavaliers? Do we belong to Jesus? The only difference at the end of the day that matters is are we truly his or are we not? Everything else, we can take it or leave it. Is his name written on our foreheads? Are our names written in the Lamb's book of life? It's unfortunate, but it would be a while before the disciples really got this message. Because even afterward, James and John, in verses 51 through 56, were ready to call down fire from heaven to destroy a Samaritan village for not welcoming Jesus as he was approaching his passion. Jesus had to rebuke them yet again by telling them, you don't even know what manner of spirit you are of when you say such things. For the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. Jesus had just previously instructed them how to handle such cases. Shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. And here the disciples were, ready to literally murder people. This should be a caution to us, CCR. There's a lot going on in our world and in our country. You know this. Political and social tensions are at an all-time high. There's a lot of division and consequently civil unrest. And we as the church must strive to be unified And we each must have our identities firmly rooted in the gospel for us to be effective witnesses, salt and light, show the world a different and a better way, and to usher in 
the reign of our coming king. Let's pray together.